Hey, this is Dr. Eric, and I just want to let you know about my gut healing bundle for those with thyroid and autoimmune thyroid conditions. This includes SMT Probio, which is a probiotic with 18 well-researched strains, Enzymes Plus, which not only includes digestive enzymes, but betaine, HCL, and ox bile, and SMT GI Restore, which is a stevia-free formulation that has multiple nutrients and herbs that have been proven to help support the healing of the gut. To learn more about this, you can visit guthealingbundle.com. Thank you for joining me on the Save My Thyroid podcast, where I help people save their thyroid and regain their health. My name is Dr. Eric Osansky, and if you have hyperthyroidism, then you will especially benefit from these episodes. But if you have hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's thyroiditis, you will also find many of these episodes to be valuable, including this one where I interviewed Dr. Shane Stedman as he discusses a relationship between the brain, gut, and thyroid. This is yet another episode that will benefit pretty much anyone with a thyroid or autoimmune thyroid condition, as I learned a lot from Dr. Stedman, and I'm confident that you will too. Make sure you check out the post-episode chat after the outro music, as I'll expand on our conversation about GABA supplements, brain trauma leading to thyroid autoimmunity, and testing for a leaky gut and leaky brain. Anyway, here is my interview with Dr. Shane Stedman. Welcome to the Save My Thyroid podcast, hosted by Dr. Eric Osansky. To stay up to date on the latest thyroid health-related topics, visit SaveMyThyroid.com. The following discussion is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking with your doctor. Now let's head to the show. All right, so with me, I have Dr. Shane Stedman, and we are going to discuss the brain-gut-thyroid connection, and Dr. Stedman is an expert in treating and supporting tough cases such as concussions, migraines, vertigo, peripheral neuropathy, autoimmune conditions, thyroid and hormonal disorders, as well as other health conditions. Dr. Shane became a chiropractic neurologist in 2003 and is one of only a small handful of chiropractic neurologists in the entire state of Colorado. Dr. Stedman is the owner of Integrated Health Systems in Denver, Colorado. He has completed numerous hours of postgraduate and advanced studies in functional neurology and functional medicine, including functional blood chemistry and thyroid issues, as well as neurotransmitters and brain function through the University of Bridgeport. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Stedman. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's going to be fun. I'm happy to be on. Yeah, I'm excited as well. And so I guess the first question I have, just like during many podcasts, host asks the person they're interviewing to give their background. But my question as far as before getting into the background, can you discuss what a chiropractic neurologist is and then discuss why you became a chiropractic neurologist? Why are you doing what you're doing today? Yeah, absolutely. You know, chiropractic neurology is newer to the public, but I mean, it's been around since the early 80s. But what chiropractic neurology is, is really kind of that idea of understanding the functionality of the brain and then trying to identify like which areas of the brain are working and which areas are not working as well. And make it easy is similar to like a physical therapist, right? So if you hurt your hip, then you go to the physical therapist and they say, hey, this muscle is not working. This one's overactive. You know, their range of motion is not great. And so you're able to identify what's going on with the hip so that you can develop a treatment plan. And that's the whole goal with chiropractic neurology, or sometimes what people might hear is a term called functional neurology, which is just that same concept of let's, you know, if you get a head injury or if you have vertigo, why, 
Why are you having these symptoms? What areas of the brain are overworking, not working, not communicating? And then what therapeutic strategies can we prescribe to make it so that those areas are actually doing what they're supposed to be doing? And when everything works together in the brain, then that's usually when you see like really cool things happening. All right. And so you've been a chiropractor and neurologist for almost 20 years now, 2003, correct? Yep. That's a long time. (laughs) You know, so you've seen a lot of different cases and let's dive in. Let's talk about, you know, I don't know where you want to go as far as if you want to first like focus on brain thyroid or brain gut, or if you just want to cover it all, you know, just cover the connection between the brain, the gut and the thyroid. You know, yeah, that's something, and this is kind of where my practice has kind of evolved over the years is trying to understand, you know, you always hear the brain body connection and yes, but that's even still more generic. You know, we're really trying to understand how these systems interplay with each other. When we're looking at brain function and we look at something like the thyroid, or we look at something like the gut. And I think this is a great topic because we can really kind of explain to people that everything is so intertwined that you can't just look at the thyroid. And I believe that, you know, when you talk to people and patients are coming in, I think people are starting to understand that, that there's more to the story than just TSH. And so a lot of people say, well, my TSH is high, so I put on this medication. But really what we have to figure out is why is the thyroid not working? And so now we start looking at all the pieces. And I think the brain actually becomes one of those pieces that is still kind of overlooked to this day. So to kind of, I guess, give the story on brain thyroid function, What a lot of people don't realize is that the signal to the thyroid, so when we look at TSH, TSH is a signal or it's a message that comes from the pituitary down into the thyroid. It tells the thyroid what to do. So if that signal is off, then we can actually go and look at the brain. What is the pituitary doing? But if we even kind of take a step back from there and we say, well, what tells the pituitary what to do? Well, it's the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus is kind of like your big regulator of all sorts of things from like temperature to growth and sleep, adrenals, stress, all these different things. So your hypothalamus has to tell the pituitary what to do, but we can't stop there. We even have to take a step back and say, well, who tells the hypothalamus what to do? Well, the hypothalamus has all these things that kind of integrate from different areas of the brain and the body that says, hey, this is what's going on. And it's kind of like everybody reporting back to the general, you know, or to the president, you know, this is what the army's doing. And this is what the national guard is doing. And this is the economy and the financial economy. And, you know, all these pieces come together. And then based on all those signals, the hypothalamus then knows, okay, this is what I need to do, you know, to make sure that homeostasis is always there. So two of the biggest things when we look at like hypothalamic function or what activates it is actually serotonin and dopamine which a lot of people wouldn't even think about that because, you know, serotonin and dopamine play a role with mood and motivation and joy and, you know, happiness and all these things like that. So if you have imbalances in serotonin, we're going to see imbalances in mood. And does that same imbalance affect the thyroid? And the answer is big possibility. So that's kind of where we start seeing some of these like brain to thyroid connections is that it's just much bigger than just looking at this gland. There's so many factors involved. And that's what we've tried to do over the years is trying to understand that connectivity between brain and body, brain and thyroid, you know, and then you throw in the gut and that's a whole nother animal because the brain and the gut have a relationship with each other. And I think if we truly understand that the brain controls the whole body, you know, then we should 
definitely look at the brain to say, well, if we fix the brain, how does that fix the body and how does the body impact the brain? So obviously I'm biased and this is a passion of mine, but this is kind of how we work in the office. Yeah, that's uh, pretty amazing. So imbalances in serotonin or dopamine ultimately affect the hypothalamus, which could affect the communication between hypothalamus and pituitary. And so that could, in some cases, cause thyroid dysfunction, correct? It could, absolutely. As you know, most thyroid conditions are autoimmune in nature. So with hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's, hyperthyroidism, Graves, the immune system, of course, plays a big role. But even in these cases, I would think the brain could be affected as well. You can't just assume that it's only the immune system that's the problem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the brain can definitely come into play. And I think what's even more interesting is that your brain can actually play a role with autoimmunity. So depending on the balance within the brain, looking at right brain, left brain, the cerebellum, they actually have roles in autoimmune conditions as well and controlling the immune system. So you can have a brain that's causing an alteration in the immune system, that immune system is also then impacting the thyroid. You know, so I think that's why, you know, when you kind of said the name of this clinic is integrated health, that's kind of why we named it that. Cause I was like, everything affects everything. How do we address it? And where do we start? I always tell patients, it's like when you go fishing, I don't know if you've ever done it, but you throw the line out there and then you reel it in. And for some reason it was tangled. And I swear, I still don't know to this day how your line gets tangled in the water, but sometimes it gets so tangled that it looks like a bird's nest. And so like, you're like, where do I start with this thing? Because you're trying to unravel it. Right. And sometimes you sit there for 20 minutes and you're trying to like find the one thread or loop the fishing line that you're like, oh, I think I got it. I think I got it. But you're sitting there for 20 minutes trying to figure out where to start. And I think a lot of these complex cases that patients are struggling with is very similar. Where do we start? Brain, thyroid, gut, neurotransmitters, autoimmune, inflammation. Sometimes it's just so messy. I mean, I think that's what's important about learning all the different pieces. Yeah, no, you're right. So, where do you start? If someone comes in, I assume you go through a conference of health history. And is it safe to say in most cases, you don't start with the thyroid? Maybe you start in some cases with the brain, start in some cases with the gut, or maybe you do start with the thyroid in some cases. You know, our exam, what I try to do is say, okay, let's look at each system. So like, I mean, we do a consultation, but that's just, you know, to see if we would be a great fit on the exam or the day of the exam. You know, we very much say, okay, let's do a neuro exam. Let's see what the brain is doing. And then we'll do a health history because if the health history dictates that somebody's on, you know, antidepressive medications, they got a history of depression, they got a history of traumas, maybe that's a player. So then we start diving into the history and finding out what have you taken? What have you gone through? What has life been like? And then we look through like blood work and we look at lab testing and we look at cortisol levels. And so we actually look at all of it and then by looking at all of it, then I can decipher, is this a neurological condition? Is this a thyroid gland dysfunction? Is this an autoimmune condition? Or are there other systems like hormones and gut dysfunction that are actually playing a role? So I actually look at every single system and then try to decipher which systems do we need to go after? Sometimes it's one, sometimes it's all. So, and that's where I think everybody is so uniquely different. And if I understood you correctly, before you said that the brain can actually lead to an autoimmune condition. So if someone had concussion, traumatic brain injury, in some cases that could be kind of like the trigger to an autoimmune condition. Or? Yeah, absolutely. There's really fascinating research and looking at things like, like the cerebellum has a pretty significant role with natural killer cells. You know, there's some research that shows like the right brain deals more with the B cells where the left brain deals with the T cells. 
you know, so yeah, there's some really fascinating literature and information out there looking at like concussions and what their implications can be in sparking an autoimmune condition. And we see that sometimes in the office where somebody has a car accident and then they developed multiple sclerosis or they had a car accident and developed another kind of autoimmune condition. You know, so yeah, it's really kind of interesting. It's a whole nother world of looking at like almost neuroimmunology and how it influences. And in the same token, autoimmune conditions can create imbalances in the brain and fire up, you know, areas of the brain that don't need to be activated, but they're being activated because of the autoimmunity. All right. Very, very interesting. So how about the brain gut connection? Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So the brain, you know, definitely keeps the gut. So the gut is a rest and digest system. So everybody's kind of familiar with that term. Then the opposite of that is your fight or flight. So the gut, we need to make sure it has motility. It needs to move. It needs to absorb. But those are important connection that goes, you know, from your like frontal lobe or your cortex into your brainstem and your brainstem houses the vagus nerve. And that vagus nerve then goes into the gut to help with motility and function and movement and absorption, digestion. So you have this connection from cortex to brainstem to gut. And they've even done some really cool studies where they actually taken, you know, mice and they had this group of mice that they actually activated the vagus nerve and then caused almost like a concussion. But because the vagus nerve was really strong and sustained that it actually kept good gut function in that mouse where another mouse, they, you know, would create a concussion and they would find all those gut issues. So there's a lot of connectivity from the brain to the vagus nerve into the gut. It's really fascinating that you see in like some of your first signs of like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's is constipation. Some of your first signs in kids with special needs is constipation. And some of the biggest struggles in most kids with special needs is constipation. So it tells you how much that brain gut relationship is there. On the flip side, we see a lot of people with like anxiety disorders and PTSD that if you're in a constant fight or flight, then you get this inhibition of the rest and digest. So you start seeing decrease in motility and you see all sorts of gut issues stemming from that. So the brain has really strong, powerful connections with the gut. Now you mentioned a vagus nerve. Are there tests that you do? Like, is it part of your neurological exam to determine if someone has dysfunction in the vagus nerve or? Yep. Yeah. Every single patient, we actually look at vagus nerve function because if somebody has gut issues, well, do they have true gut issues or is there gut issues because of a neurological condition? And so part of our neuro exam is always looking at that vagus nerve because it's an idea what the brainstem is doing, but specifically because that vagus nerve has such a major role in a lot of your visceral function, you know, just kidney, gallbladder, you know, stomach, liver, all those things come from the vagus nerve. And so we want to make sure that vagus nerve is working and not just assume that, oh, you have a liver issue. So you need supplements. That may not be the case. You might have a liver issue because of the brain gut or brain body connection through that vagus. So we definitely check that on almost every single patient. And if someone does have problems with the vagus nerve, I know there's different vagus nerve exercises, like vigorous gargling is one Mm -hmm. and, you know, singing loud. How about just plain old mind-body medicine? Is that not typically enough as far as getting the vagus nerve, getting the someone more in a parasympathetic state? I think it can be, but clinically, I think it takes longer and it's harder. So yeah, we'll use a lot of those exercises. There's actually some vagus nerve stimulators you know, that we actually use in the office that you can actually kind of put right along their vagus nerve and activate it. So besides the exercises, we actually use some equipment that stimulates the vagus nerve 
Sometimes we'll actually do some stimulation like through the tongue to kind of drive into the brainstem as well, maybe through the faces. There's kind of like these kind of ways to get into the vagus nerve, kind of backdoor into the vagus nerve or hit it directly, you know, to try to turn it on so that we can get some activation. And that's where the testing comes in. Because if we test it and it's not working and then we stimulate it and now it's working, then we've made a change. Many listeners are familiar with the leaky gut, increase in intestinal permeability. Uh, can you talk about also leaky brain, you know, with the disruption of blood brain barrier? Because there is some overlap with the two, if I understand correctly. There definitely is. So within leaky gut, the best analogy I like is kind of like a picket fence. You know, so when you look at gut function, you have this barrier that protects you from the world. And it's the fence, just like in your backyard. And leaky gut is kind of when those fence pickets are broken, you know, either they got bumped into with somebody's car on accident or your kids were playing soccer and broke the slats. But, you know, so if you break a slat or you're missing a slat or the wind blows over your fence, like we think we had a few times in Denver this year, then you have now a gap in your fence. And so now animals can get through and kids can get through and trash gets through and that shouldn't be getting into your backyard. So it's everything in your backyard should stay there and everything on the street should stay there. And that's kind of the best analogy for leaky gut. What's really fascinating is what kind of ties the whole, all those slats together are two different bonds. And they're kind of like little shoelaces. They kind of hold it all together and they're called occludin and zonulin bonds. Well, those same exact bonds are found in the blood brain barrier system. And so you have these things that kind of like tie it all together to kind of protect and keep everything in the brain in the brain and everything that's out should be out. And so when you start affecting those bonds, you don't only affect the gut, but you also affect the brain. And so this is kind of evidence. If you have a big old cheeseburger with fries and a Coke for lunch, and now you have brain fog, well, you probably also have gas and bloating, you know? So you start seeing this gas and bloating and brain fog. And that's really kind of indicative that you've really messed up those bonds. You've kind of broken those bonds down a little bit, and now you got some slats missing. And so basically leaky brain, the symptoms are just brain fog. So if anybody's walking around going, man, I got gas and bloating and brain fog that tells us that your barrier system you know, needs to be fixed and need to call a fence repair guy out there quick. Do you do any testing for leaky gut or leaky brain? I know there's one test out there from Cyrix that relates to the blood brain barrier. I don't know if you just assume that someone has a leaky gut. I mean, that's what I do. I used to use the Cyrix labs and Tesla permeability test. And now these days, I just assume that most people have a leaky gut. So what approach do you take when it comes to leaky gut, leaky brain? Yeah. Yeah, I would say it's really similar. Yeah, there's times when I'll use those tests that look at blood brain barrier proteins and occludin zonulin bonds. And you can measure those in the bloodstream and see, you know, if you have a lot in the bloodstream, you're probably breaking those bonds down and they're floating around in the body, so to speak. So we'll look at those markers. But yeah, I kind of get to the point of kind of making assumptions now because most patients that come in have some kind of like brain fog. And usually the things that we're going to do initially is to repair the fence. And so there's definitely some certain supplements that can repair the fence. You know, reducing inflammation is a great way to help repair the fence. You know, so I try those things and usually, you know, people talk about, hey, my migraines went away. My brain fog went away. I'm able to focus. My mood is better. You know, there's probably a good chance that we've been fixing that blood brain barrier. So usually I'll kind of start testing a little bit more if I get stumped you know, or if something's not, you know, kind of fixed the way I think it should be, then I can do that. Another thing that I've done before too, is I've also just used straight GABA, which I know you've probably heard of that about that before too. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, using straight GABA, which shouldn't, it's kind of too big to go through the slats and the fence, you know? So if GABA is like 
if a basketball shouldn't get through the fence, but if you find basketballs in your backyard, then there's probably holes in the fence. And that's kind of what GABA is. GABA is a little too big to get through. So if people actually experience symptoms from GABA that could be good or bad, then that could be indicating that there's some like kind of gaps in your barrier system. And so, yeah, I think, I think in my career, I do a little bit more assuming than testing because if I'm going to use dollars for testing, I'm probably going to use them towards something else that might be more beneficial. Yeah, agreed. So can someone have brain fog without having that disruption of the blood-brain barrier? Can there be other causes of brain fog? Absolutely, there can be. There's different immune mechanisms that take place in the brain. And so anytime that you create inflammation, you know, you can create that brain fog feeling. You know, so I mean, we're definitely, we see that with food, you know, most commonly, but you also hear that with people who talk about smelled gasoline and I got brain fog. Somebody's perfume gave me brain fog. I get stressed. I get brain fog. I don't eat. I get brain fog, you know, so there's definitely some other mechanisms that can take place, but that usually involves your immune system in some form or fashion. Hey, this is Dr. Eric, and if you're looking to do everything you can to save your thyroid gland, in addition to listening to this podcast, there are a few different ways we can help you. First of all, I've written a book on hyperthyroidism called Natural Treatment Solutions for Hyperthyroidism and Graves' Disease, as well as a book called Hashimoto's Triggers, which of course is on Hashimoto's thyroiditis, and you can find both of these on Amazon as well as other websites where books are sold. Second, you could also join my Graves' Disease and Hashimoto's Healing Community by visiting autoimmunethyroidgroup.com. And finally, if you want to get personal help from me, you could visit the website workwithdrerick.com. Just to let you know, I only see a limited number of new patients each month, and I do require anyone interested to complete a brief online application before working with me. And now back to the show. All right, let's talk about thyroid gut connection, if you could dive into that. Yeah, so the thyroid itself produces a hormone called T4, and it produces a little bit of T3, but T4 is kind of the primary hormone that it produces, which is inactive. So it really doesn't do much for us. So we have to convert that into T3. And basically what this is, is T4, the reason why the number four is there is because it has four iodines attached to it what your body does is it takes off one of those iodines. And so now it's called T3. So this conversion takes place within the gut and in the liver. And so about 20% of your conversion actually takes place in your gut. And it uses some enzymes that are produced via your flora or your normal gut bacteria. So meaning that you got to have good digestive function and a good number of bugs, and they all have to be in balance in order to help convert your thyroid from T4 to T3. And so there's a really big role that the digestive system has in this. And so that if you're not converting that properly, then your T3 that's active is now on the low side. So you can actually start having thyroid symptoms, not because the thyroid gland is not doing its job, but because the digestive system is imbalanced. So that kind of starts to look at some of that thyroid to gut function. But what's kind of unfortunate sometimes is that one of the causes of gut dysfunction is hypothyroidism. So now we get into this like chicken or the egg concept. It's like, do you have gut issues because you have hypothyroid? Do you have hypothyroid because you have gut issues? Who's what and what's what? So, you know, a lot of times, you know, with patients, I think this is where you have to develop a treatment plan that sometimes catches all aspects of those vicious webs. And so if we can get the thyroid function better and we can get the gut function better, then we're getting both ends of the story 
because I see too many practitioners that focus on one and not the other. And then the patient's getting frustrated because they're not seeing the results that they want. So I think when people who are listening, it's always good to say, you know, when you're talking to a doctor, like, do you know the whole concept, (laughs) thyroid function, because just focusing on one may not get me to where I would love to be. So in a situation where someone is hypothyroid and they have a lot of gut dysbiosis, a lot of imbalances in the gut flora, you might recommend for them to take thyroid hormone replacements, but like that wouldn't be the only recommendation. You would also do things to help restore the health of the gut as well. Yeah. And, you know, we have a nurse practitioner in the office and that's some of the treatment plans that we use. Like, I think there's a time and a place for medication and maybe medication is great while I'm working on their gut. And then you might find that maybe they don't need the medication now because you're actually converting hormones properly. You know, so having a nurse practitioner that we can put them on and then, you know, take them off as needed if it's possible. And then there's other times where we can utilize some supplementation to support the thyroid gland while we're working on the gut and then retest to see how we're doing. And, you know, these are very plausible treatment plans that we see quite often. But again, it's that functional medicine, that functional neurology piece of trying to understand what's their function or what's their dysfunction and how do we improve it? And that becomes the goal of, I think, working with patients. Do you recommend any type of gut testing, like a comprehensive stool panel or a SIBO breath test in some cases? Yeah, in some cases, we'll definitely do that. You know, I don't run stool panels on every single patient. I think they can be very beneficial depending on, you know, patients talking about like constant constipation or diarrhea or constant bloating, because you want to find out, you know, what is causing that's always a question that I try to explain to the practitioners I've worked with is we're always trying to say why. So we can't simply stop as saying, well, somebody has gut dysfunction. It should be, why does somebody have gut dysfunction? You know, because you're trying to get to the core root. We always have to constantly ask why. And sometimes it's really easy. You know, somebody just loves pizza and Cheetos every day. And then there's other patients where you go, okay, you're eating pretty perfect. So why do you still have issues? Well, that's where we maybe should do some testing and find out. And that's what's, I think, cool about lab testing and technology these days is we have different styles of testing to try to figure out those whys. And the further we can dive into finding out the why, usually the faster we can get somebody feeling better. Let's talk a little bit more about constipation. I wasn't planning on going in this direction, but a lot of people experience it. And, you know, you mentioned earlier about the connection between the brain and, you know, like Parkinson's disease where, you know, early sign would be constipation. So, In a situation where someone is constipated and they're doing everything from a diet perspective, it just seems like, I don't want to use the word perfect gut health, but let's say it just seems like everything's in line. So from what you said, it could be the brain. I mean, not to say it's related to Parkinson's, but it could be a potential brain-based disorder that's causing a constipation. Yeah, it definitely could be. And I think this is where sometimes in the functional medicine space, they're using everything, you know, every supplement and they're just not getting anywhere. And so that's where you can look at brain function and say, what's going on. So, you know, and that's where the neurology testing comes into play or that neurology degree, which is kind of, it's helpful because I know not everybody has that capability, you know, but if you start looking at frontal lobe function and say, you know, they're kind of losing their gait mechanisms or their ability to walk smooth, they're losing some of their eye coordinations, they're not blinking. Then you go, okay, there's something kind of funky going on, you know, that we need to investigate more. Or somebody could have had, you know, just a concussion and maybe their brainstem was impacted. And so that vagus nerve is simply not working the way that it should be. These are all different things from a neurological standpoint that can cause constipation. And so 
I think in that, that's why it's so important to like look at so many different mechanisms that it's not always like, hey, just give them magnesium and everything's going to be fine. It's like, well, again, why do they have constipation? And, you know, you brought up SIBO earlier, but, you know, you can have it from too many bugs that produce, you know, too much methane gases, or it could be a parasite, or it could be a virus, or it could be an autoimmune condition. It could be IBS-C for constipation. So there's so many different causes, but I think the one that does get overlooked is brain. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that. And how about blood sugar? Can you talk a little bit about the impact of blood sugar imbalances on brain health? And even maybe immune health. I mean, wherever you want to go with the blood sugar. <laughs> yeah. Blood sugar might be one of those like top things that we're always trying to stabilize because I think a lot of people have either too much, too little, or they're roller coastering all day long. You know, they're on these like highs and lows. And blood sugar is something that's simple because in some regards, that's one of the things that we can definitely control. We can control what we eat, how we eat, when we eat. Stress can play a role into blood sugar and that can mess it up. But there's a lot of things that we can do. So that's something that we usually try to focus on. But we know that blood sugar affects the brain because if you've ever met anybody who gets hangry, that's a neurological change. So is your blood sugar dropped and now you're anxious, irritable? I mean, I was just working on a kid earlier and his blood sugar was low and he started crying during the exam. You know, and mom's like, your blood sugar is getting low. You know, you haven't eaten in a while. You know, so we know that blood sugar affects brain function just by looking at mood. But what people also forget too, is that that's one of the main fuel sources for your brain. So in neurology, we always talk about that your brain needs three things to function. It needs glucose or blood sugar, oxygen, and stimulation. And so if one of those three things is off, then how's your brain going to function? Are you able to take a road trip without fatiguing, reading without fatiguing? Can you go to work without fatiguing? Can you exercise? All these different things, your brain is involved. And once your brain fizzles out, it's really hard to do function and do life. Yeah. So you mentioned oxygen. That also then ties into like anemia, like you want to correct not just iron deficiency anemia, but there's other types of anemia. Yeah, absolutely. So anemia, for a lot of people don't know, like when you're anemic, it's really hard to deliver oxygen everywhere because you have to have iron to make hemoglobin. And that's what attracts oxygen to carry throughout the body. And so, yeah, so, you know, those are important things like anemia, sleep apnea, shallow breathing, all those different things can really impact how the brain functions too. So it's really important when you look at brain function to make sure you're getting enough fuel, like in glucose, you're getting enough oxygen and you're getting enough activation, which means going for a walk, getting good sleep, having a good community, figuring things out, learning, you know, all those different things that keep your brain constantly engaged. And that stimulation is really important for long-term growth. All right. Well, one of the questions I wanted to ask was how do you diagnose brain-based disorders? And I guess you kind of answered that. I don't know if you want to expand a little bit more, but it's really, I guess, putting people through that neurological exam, correct? It is. So when you put somebody through a neuro exam, then you're able to look at systems. So for instance, if we're going to look at the frontal lobe, you know, we want to look at certain things like certain eye movements are associated with the frontal lobe, fine motor movements, certain aspects of coordination, memory. But then we get into the history side, which is, you know, multitasking, motivation, mood, libido, being able to finish a task that you started. Those are all kind of ideas of the frontal lobe. And so then we can say, okay, what's the frontal lobe doing by our testing? And then we can look at the parietal lobe, which is mainly sensory. And we can say like, 
How well can you feel the right side of your body, the left side of your body with sharp, dull, light touch, you know, things like that. You know, and then the temporal lobe is kind of more of like smell, short-term memory, math, things like that. The cerebellum, which is in the back part of your head at the base, that looks at balance and gross motor, some aspects of memory, some of your eye movements. So when all that to say is that when you certain tasks go to certain parts of the brain, and so by looking at the different parts of the brain, we have the patient go through certain tasks. And if they can't do something, then we start to get an idea of where the dysfunction is taking place. So if somebody has a hard time with fine motor movements and gait, their long-term memory is getting thrown off. They've lost their motivation. They're more depressed. Libido's decreased. They are great at starting tasks, but they have all these unfinished tasks around the house. You start to go, ooh, I don't think your frontal lobe is working as well as it should. And that's how we're able to start diagnosing these kind of dysfunctions. You know, there's things that you're taught on looking at more pathological conditions as well. But mostly what we see coming in the office is going to be more of these functional disconnect or functional deficit types of disorders. So what do you put someone, I know you see a lot of tough cases, but if you happen to have, you know, someone who had, let's say Hashimoto's and their symptoms weren't too severe, they just, maybe they were referred to you by someone else, maybe by one of your tough cases, but this particular situation, what didn't seem too challenging, would you still recommend for them to go through a neurological exam? Like, do you put everybody through that exam? Yeah, we definitely do because, you know, sometimes patients will come in thinking that it is a very simple issue, but when you start doing the exam, you start finding out these little things that shouldn't be there. And it's really interesting because sometimes patients go, you know, I've been dealing with that for a while. If you see like this, you know, twitch, you know, on their face or their head and you go, you know, do you have restless legs syndrome or anything like that? And they go, oh my gosh, for the past 20 years, but I don't talk about it anymore because I thought it was normal. You know, I mean, there's a lot of things that patients think is normal that it's not normal. And so as you start kind of going through a test, you figure it out. I remember one time I was working on a girl, she was 14. Parents brought her in for Hashimoto's, just simple Hashimoto's. But when we started doing the finger to nose test, where you're looking at your cerebellum, oh my gosh, it was terrible. She couldn't even touch her nose. You know, she was like, her hand was jerking all the way and she ended up touching her cheek. And the parents were like, what's wrong with her? So kind of through the course of it, you know, we did some testing. She actually had kind of a mix of Hashimoto's and Graves, but she also had an autoimmune condition that was affecting her cerebellum. And there is some really interesting ties between cerebellum and thyroid function too. And so all of a sudden, like the whole case is like, took a left hand turn. And I was like, okay, we got a lot more things going on than just Hashimoto's. And that's actually kind of common to see those things that people just, you know, they might be so focused on Hashimoto's that they miss everything else or they didn't think to tell the doctor because they didn't think it was important or they're like, well, no, you're the Hashimoto's person. I didn't even think to bring up my vertigo to you. So, you know, for me, it's important to kind of do a thorough evaluation on everybody. And I'm guessing you also, I mean, you've been practicing for a long time. So you probably have people who have been in past traumas, but until you go through the health history, they don't even think about it. Like maybe they had a car accident 10 years ago and maybe to them, it was just, you know, some people, obviously it's, could be a severe car accident, but others, it might just be a rear end and, you know, they felt fine after, or maybe they had a fall. So, so I assume you see some of those cases where I guess it might be impossible to pinpoint it was due to that trauma, but they're not coming to see you because of that trauma. But then when you go through the health history, you could kind of relate some of the symptoms to a past trauma. And again, maybe I'm sure sometimes you can't, but again, what are your thoughts on that? Like if someone had a trauma 
let's say 20, 30 years ago. And, you know, after that, maybe they seem like they felt fine, you know, no pain, no discomfort. Could that decades later lead to some of these issues that we're discussing? Yeah, we see that all the time, actually. It's kind of interesting when you start doing the history, you know, and you start doing timelines, you know, when did this start? We'll start in 2008. Well, what happened in 2008? You know, I don't know, but I think it was about 2007, you know, I was in a car accident or I slipped and fell and hit my head on the concrete, or we went through a really traumatic experience, or I went through a really bad divorce, you know, and you're like, huh, you know, what else has happened since then? Yeah. And then sometimes you go, it seems like everything kind of ties back to that moment in time. And so then we can start kind of working our way forward because yeah, if there is a trauma, like a car accident, then maybe there's a neurological imbalance. If they had a spouse or a loved one pass away, I've had counselors in my office. That's when you're like, I think counseling might be a great thing for you because maybe counseling is now part of your treatment plan. You know, or they said, you know, I was really, really sick in 2007. I don't know what it was, but I was really sick during that time. You know, and maybe they had a viral infection. And we know that Hashimoto's, the number one virus that impacts it is Epstein-Barr virus or your monovirus. You know, so sometimes you go back and you go, well, what did you have? I don't know, but man, I was so exhausted for like three months. I had to take time off of work and you go, all right, starting to see how this picture is unfolding. And so, yeah, I, I agree. There's a lot of times things back in the past are kind of what's dictating the future events, but maybe it's just kind of been a slow brew of dysfunction over the next five, 10 years. So when it comes to treatment, obviously everybody's different. So I'm sure you don't treat everybody the same, but Anything that like across the board, I guess, diet, like are there some things that you recommend for everybody? And I guess even with diet, you might not recommend the same exact diet for everyone, but maybe with everybody, it's a, you know, I would imagine an anti-inflammatory diet consisting of whole healthy foods. But can you talk a little bit in general about treatments? Usually our treatments are kind of multifactored. So, you know, if we're doing a neuro exam, let's say that there's actually findings that seem to be relevant to the case. And maybe not as well, but if there's findings, then we'll say, okay, here's our kind of neurological treatment plan. And then we kind of have like more metabolic treatment plan. And the metabolic might be working on adrenals, thyroid, gut dysfunction, whatever. And then sometimes we'll have a, an immune side of it. So a lot of times we kind of almost have that three-pronged approach of like neurological treatment, metabolic treatment, and immunology. And so we kind of combine those worlds together because you can't, in my mind, just do one separately all the time for everybody, but that's kind of our protocol, so to speak. And a lot of the metabolic, we have to work on foundational stuff. So, I mean, you got to make sure, like you said, anti-inflammatory diets and sleep. You know, if you can't get somebody to sleep, you're not going to get very far with them. So, you know, we got to work on sleep. We got to work on gut. We got to work on blood sugar stability. We got to work on adrenals, you know, and anything else. I mean, if they're anemic, we got to fix the anemia, you know, so that's that metabolic arm, so to speak. And then with neurologic, you know, if it's a frontal lobe issue, we got to start working on frontal lobe. If it's a vagus nerve issue, then we got to start working on the vagus nerve and getting exercises in and stimulating it. And if there is something like Hashimoto's, then what do we do to support the immune system? And so that kind of becomes our treatment plan. And that's probably the easiest way I can say that's a protocol for all patients. And the only way they don't get those three arms is, you know, if I do a neuro exam and I go, dang, this is like one of the best brains I've seen in a while, then they don't get anything in that treatment plan because it doesn't make sense to, but I still might stimulate the vagus nerve because, you know, that could be a great way to get the gut moving, you know, so maybe they have a healthy vagus nerve and I'm just going to use that mechanism to get the gut moving and, and functioning better. All right. Well, you shared a lot of amazing information. I mean, I learned a lot. 
sure the listeners learned a lot. Is there anything that I didn't ask that I should have asked or anything that you'd like to discuss? Obviously, this is something where we could easily go on and on and on, but anything that I missed that you know have a burning desire to cover? <laughs> no, we talked about a lot. That was a lot of information. This might be one of those podcasts where they need to listen to it two, three, four times just to Agreed. pick up some more, some more nuggets. You know, I think that's always my goal is I like coming on podcasts and saying, here's a bunch of nuggets, you know, because not one size fits all. Everybody's a little bit different. And maybe that's a great way to kind of end is that, you know, sometimes people get stuck on like, they did a food allergy test and it fixed them. Then everybody has to do a food allergy test and that's got to be the end all to be all. And that's not always the case. Everybody is so uniquely different with their own history and their own circumstances and their own genetics, you know, that it's really important, I think, to find practitioners that are really talented at kind of looking at the whole person. And I think that's the fastest way to get better because even in the holistic field, I like holistic medicine. I like holistic practitioners, but you know, if you have a hammer and everything looks like a nail, I don't care if it's, I do parasites or I do adrenals only, or I do food allergy testing or everybody has to gargle. If you have a hammer and everything looks like a nail, probably finding somebody else might be a better option in my opinion, because I think life is too complex and our bodies are way too complex to think that one thing can fix everybody. Well said. And where can people learn more about you? I'm sure some people, again, listening would love to find out more about how to work with you. So if you could give your website and any other information you'd like to share. Absolutely. There's two websites that we use and update. And one's Integrated Health Denver. So I'm in beautiful Denver, Colorado. So IntegratedHealthDenver.com. And the other one's IntegratedBrainCenters.com. You know, so we kind of got two different arms because, you know, we get people that come in with the concussions. So they kind of use that website more to find us. But also, you know, we're trying to be active on social media. So, you know, Integrated Health and Integrated Brain Centers on Facebook, Instagram, and all those pieces like that are greats. And it's always good to kind of sign up because we're always throwing stuff out there and we do webinars, you know, so I'm doing a webinar tonight on migraines. And so we're always constantly out there trying to disseminate information and articles and nuggets and pearls and whatever you want to call it. We just want the world to be a better place. So follow us and like us and share, and we're going to keep putting it out there. All right. Sounds good. Of course, I'll make sure to put those links in the show notes. Thanks, Dr. Stedman. It really was a pleasure chatting with you. And again, I'm sure, you know, the listeners as well as myself learned a lot about the brain gut thyroid connection. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. So it's a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the Save My Thyroid podcast. If you haven't done so already, make sure you hit subscribe to stay up to date on the latest thyroid health related topics. And to get your free thyroid and immune health restoration action points checklist, visit SaveMyThyroidChecklist.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. That was an awesome interview, and I have attended some Mastering the Brain seminars from Apex Energetics, and I think that Dr. Stedman might have taught at least one of them. And if I had a known or suspected brain injury, I definitely would consider flying to Denver to work with Dr. Stedman. But what's interesting is that a lot of people probably have underlying brain injuries that they're not aware of. For example, if someone has brain fog and if they do everything they can to improve their health, and the brain fog doesn't improve, then perhaps this was related to a past car accident, fall, or a different trauma. And I found it fascinating about the possibility of trauma to the brain being a potential cause of autoimmunity. So if someone has Graves' disease or Hashimoto's thyroiditis, and if they're unable to get into remission, even though they seem to be doing everything right, it might be worth seeing a chiropractic neurologist. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a chiropractor, as this really is based on the conversation I had with Dr. Stedman. 
During the interview, Dr. Stedman mentioned the GABA challenge, which can potentially determine if someone has a leaky blood-brain barrier. And this is a lot cheaper than doing the Cyrex Labs blood-brain barrier test. And the way it works is that GABA isn't supposed to cross the blood-brain barrier. And so if someone takes GABA and someone notices an increase or decrease in brain-related symptoms, then this probably indicates a compromised blood-brain barrier. One thing I forgot to ask Dr. Sedman is his thoughts on liposomal GABA, because at times there is a supplement I give that's a liposomal form of GABA. And usually I give that along with as L-theanine, you know, usually it's for sleep issues. And so if that form of GABA in liposomal form would cross the blood-brain barrier. I also asked Dr. Shane whether he tests for a leaky gut, and it sounds like he takes the approach that I do, which is to assume that most of his patients have a leaky gut. And it's great that there is testing available for a leaky gut as well as a leaky brain. But as practitioners, we need to draw the line when it comes to the number of tests we recommend. And in most cases, I don't think that testing for a leaky gut is absolutely necessary. And there are also some limitations with the test out there. For example, some comprehensive stool panels allow you to test for zonulin. And if elevated, this will confirm that someone has a leaky gut. However, false negatives are common with this marker. And so normal zonulin levels do not rule out a leaky gut. And of course, if someone tests positive for a leaky gut, it won't reveal what's causing a leaky gut as that will require additional detective work. I want to let you know about a product called Hepatomune Supreme, which is a unique supplement that has a rare combination of N-acetylcysteine, also known as NAC, milk thistle, and schisandra to support the liver. And it also has a few mushrooms that can help support the immune system, including cordyceps, which has both immune modulating and adaptogenic properties and is great for those with Graves' disease and Hashimoto's. To learn more about Hepatomune Supreme, visit savemythyroid.com forward slash liver support.